Hi listeners, I'm Emily Williams and this is Understand South Carolina, a weekly news podcast by The Post and Courier. Our episode this week is all about the 2020 hurricane season. Last week, that's right, it was only a little over a week ago, Hurricane Isaias brushed past the low country but left a mess in the Grand Strand. Emery Parker and I talked with senior projects reporter Tony Bartlemy and reporter Chloe Johnson, who writes about the coastal environment and climate change just a couple days after that storm came through. They were able to add some perspective on what we can expect with months of hurricane season still left to go. Chloe also had some tips for what we should be thinking about and planning for as we head into what's usually the busiest period of the storm season and all in the midst of a pandemic. But before we get into today's episode, I want to thank Emery Parker for the time and work he put into launching Understand South Carolina and producing other Post and Courier podcasts. This was his last episode on the show, and we wish him the best. So, so Chloe, just to start out, when did this storm in particular first come on our radar? I guess literally radar. When did we first know that this was potentially going to impact South Carolina? Yeah, so um, this system was kind of a weird one from the start. It formed out of a tropical wave, um, which is a wave of low pressure that rolls off the coast of Africa. That's where we get um, many of our tropical disturbances and hurricanes through the season. Um, That is how Hurricane Hugo in 1989 formed. So Isaias came off of this wave which was very broad and just really struggled um, to start spinning uh, for many days in the Caribbean. And it actually grazed over um, the island of Española, uh, which is where the Dominican Republic and Haiti are. And typically that's kind of a graveyard for hurricanes um, because (laughs) that's a very mountainous island. And so if you have mountains sticking up into the atmosphere, it disrupts the circulation. Yeah. So I I guess in, in the end, um, Isaias didn't really have that much of an impact here in Charleston, but it did make a mess up in, in the Grand Strand area. Um, so where, where exactly did it make landfall? It made landfall, I think, officially in, North Carolina, um, maybe in kind of the Shalote area. Um, Tony, do you know exactly where it made landfall? Yeah, it, w- it went in o- near Ocean Isle, which is right near the border of South and North Carolina. Yeah. Um, in terms of South Carolina, you know, it had the biggest impact along the Grand Strand, which is what we call the 60 miles of beaches um, at the north of the state's coastline that includes Myrtle Beach, but uh, really the hardest hit area was probably Cherry Grove, um, which is, you know, has basically a bunch of canals dug through it. It's at the north end of the Grand Strand, very close to that state line. Um, And there was quite significant surge in that area. And I believe there were some rescues there, right? Were there any do we know if there were many any major injuries, any any deaths in South Carolina? I believe there were a couple in in North Carolina. Um, what about what about there, right along the border in South Carolina? So as far as we know, that in South Carolina there there weren't any fatalities or major injuries. But it's the interesting thing about this storm was that it just gained momentum as it 
as it hit land and then became even more destructive as it moved inland. And so there were two deaths fairly far, uh, fairly deep into North Carolina. And then it actually caused a tremendous amount of havoc as it moved through Virginia and Maryland and up toward uh, New England. Were those related to uh, like tornadoes or? Yeah, it spun a lot of tornadoes and then it just, its momentum uh, was such that it just, it created all sorts of, of rain, uh, even more rain than, than, certainly more rain than we got here. We got quite lucky because um, really like a day or so out, what our local National Weather Service office was expecting was that this storm was going to arrive right at high tide um, and that it was, you know, hurricanes push surge. So they basically lift up the ocean and push it onto land. Um, and we were expecting that was going to happen at high tide and that we could see inundation of two to four feet above ground um, in vulnerable coastal areas. If you know anything about Charleston and the Charleston Peninsula in particular, uh, that's a really big deal. <laughs> that's quite a lot of flooding because we're so low. Um, the storm moved a bit ahead of schedule. And this is often a tricky thing with hurricanes around the Carolinas coast because there's always this sort of point where they take off and, and shoot north. Um, it has to do with the steering currents in the atmosphere. And this guy just kind of you know, it, it lifted off, I think, a little earlier and was moving a little faster. So it got here. It was closest to us before high tide, which was around like 9 p.m., I want to say, on Monday. Um, and we got quite lucky. Also, its center stayed uh, offshore, which is another tricky thing to forecast because hurricanes don't move in smooth lines. They can sort of wobble back and forth. Um, so if it had wobbled a little bit closer to us, we might have seen a much more serious situation. Um, but we did get quite fortunate in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all <laughs> I feel like this is always one of the most frustrating things about hurricanes in our area. Um, so like this year around, we decided not to uh, camp out in the, the newsroom like we, we have um, in previous years for more serious storms. But uh, as a result, you know, I, I was having to. Uh, and I think, I think all, all over the newsroom, you know, we, we were trying to like time out, like when would people come in and when would people leave? And it's uh, really, really difficult actually to time out like when, you know, like which hours are, are going to be the worst. I, I'm looking at like all the models and trying to decide like, well, when is it safe for people to like be driving over bridges and stuff? And it's it's really, really difficult to, to nail that down. That's That's got to be one of the one of the more difficult and frustrating parts of, about all of this. Right. And it was, it, it was difficult to tell on Monday, right. If Charleston was going to get much of this. So what, what path did it end up following? I guess, why did, why did Charleston get, get spared most of this? Yeah. And certainly, you know, this storm was yet another reminder about how just a few miles here or there can make a huge difference. You know, you could you could watch the uh, the you, I, I like to look at, at the data from the buoys offshore to see what's going on out there, because typically they come in. Uh, these storms come in from the ocean. And if you look at the buoys and, and look at the wind speeds out there, uh, it's it's much, much much more severe, just 10, 15, 20 miles off the coast. And had that storm moved in just 20 miles 
West, we would have had a we'd have, we would have had a different story. And that the same thing happened in Matthew, and the same thing happened in Dorian. Both of them were really, really close. Yeah, it, it seems like just the vulnerability of Charleston too, right? Just gives this that extra sense of of what if and and anxiety when you're talking about that that flooding model just because of how um vulnerable we are right i mean tony we're in the middle of this rising waters project and looking at all of all of these things um that's that's one of these these elements too of these close calls is just how tremendous the impact could be um, if if one of those storms were to, like you said, wobble, be a little farther inland, right? Yeah, you know, whoever named the Low Country, I don't know. They they pretty much nailed it. It's I forget what percentage is is just above is one or two feet above sea level, but one or two feet of surge covers a significant portion of of the peninsula, for instance. You know. Three feet of surge puts a lot of the much of the peninsula underwater, as we saw in Matthew and Irma. So yeah, the Low Country is 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 a good name, much better than a hurricane name if you think about it. These these hurricane names are starting to bug the heck out of me. Why I mean, why not why not you know have a hurricane curse word name? You know, like Hurricane Damn It, Hurricane Bummer, Hurricane Jackass would be the next one. I think if, if I'm remembering correctly, I, I remember um, watching like one of the that that there was one particular storm surge forecast uh, that I think was either worse than Hugo or like at the level of Hugo. And, and that's when everybody got really nervous. But then it um, that that was that ended up obviously not happening. But Tony, you were tra- talking about storm names and of course it's important to talk about with this storm the fact that this was the earliest eye storm right what what is the significance of that can you kind of explain what that means and what that and i guess also how that how that plays into climate change but i guess just first of all can you explain what's the significance of 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 getting to an eye storm already at this point in the year yeah. We're, okay. We're already at the eye uh, eye level, um, which is the ninth the ninth storm of the year. So hurricanes, helpful way to understand hurricanes: hur- heat equals hurricanes, and hurricanes need uh, a certain amount of heat in the water to form. Usually, it's above eighty degrees, and we're finding now that in the in the Caribbean and the tropics, uh, water temperatures are well above. 80 degrees, really more like 86 degrees and higher. So this is a perfect cauldron for for hurricanes to form. And that's what exactly what they've been doing. They've been, uh, there, there have been nine named storms already. And the the waters down in the in the Caribbean and the tropics are, are the fourth warmest on record. And I think that's important to remember because Previous years, previous warm years, most of them have been in uh, the past couple of decades, include 2005, which was maybe the worst hurricane season ever uh, with Katrina and Wilma and Rita just wreaking havoc in in the Gulf. And then 2017, which had Hurricane Maria, which is this insanely powerful hurricane that didn't affect us, but it was had it, it would have been devastating. And then uh, Irma 
so we have we have the conditions um, in the Caribbean which are ripe for hurricane formation. And what's causing that? Well, we're you know trapping enormous amounts of heat because of our the release of carbon dioxide. Uh, that and those are uh, those emissions are created when we burn fossil fuels, and they trap heat, and 90% of that heat goes into the ocean. And the ocean becomes this giant heat sink, and then it becomes also this giant hurricane generator. So that's, so we're up to number nine now, um, when normally we, in a typical hurricane season over, over recorded history, we would be up to number two. We would be up to hurricane bummer, or whatever. So we're two months ahead of schedule, tracking a kind of a 2005-like hurricane season. And uh, so we have two months, at least three months, probably three months where we just have to hold on. Um, it's, it's interesting you mentioned Irma because Irma wasn't even, I think, a tropical storm when it began affecting us. It was like the remnants of a tropical storm. Um, and I think that just goes to show that every storm kind of has really unique threats. You know, hurricanes can dump a bunch of water on you. They can, you know, have really devastating winds. They can have surge, like Tony mentioned, um, and sort of push the ocean, you know, onto land and maybe into your house. Um, and it's we're so vulnerable to so many of those impacts here, particularly the flooding ones. Um, and every single storm, you know, you kind of have to, it's hard to compare things um, because every single storm has those, those different threats at sort of different, you know, intensities. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think that's a really good point, Chloe. That's a question too. I, I don't know about y'all, but people ask me pretty often. Um, I, I think people want there to be kind of like simple rules about like, when should I leave? When should I stay? Like, is it safe to write out a, a tropical storm? Is it safe to write out a category one, a category two? And I mean, obviously the, these categorizations are really useful and they make a lot of sense for, for meteorologists and they, you know, in a really broad sense do capture um, the severity of a storm, but it's it's not quite that simple. You can't just say, well, okay, you know, exactly where I'm sitting, um, I can write out safely a category one, or I can safely write out a category two. It, it, I, I always tell people like, you know, I, that matters a lot, but I always try to pay a lot more attention to the, like the specifics of, of what's going on. And um, honestly too, though, like most people probably don't have the the training um, and the, you know, the skills necessary to be like interpreting models. And so, you know, that that's, that's why we have forecasters that, that try their best and you should just honestly listen, listen to them and, and listen to what media is, is communicating. Um, cause, cause there, there just is a lot of uncertainty and you really just can't, there, there really aren't, you know, rules that you can, you can follow that, that say like, okay, if it meets these criteria, I'm going to be safe. And if it doesn't, it, it, you know, it's just not that simple. The Saffir-Simpson scale, by the way, which is what makes something category one or five or whichever, is only based on wind speed. That is the only thing that puts a hurricane in a category two as opposed to five or whatever. Um, so, you know, as we just said, Irma, not even a tropical storm, 
um, created record-breaking surge in Charleston in Charleston in 2017. Um, so you're exactly right, Emery. It's really important to pay attention to a local forecast when something like this is coming. Chloe, I know you've been tracking storms for um, especially our, our hurricane wire newsletter, and you're looking a lot of, at a lot of these systems. What happened with A through H? Have any other storms come close to maybe threatening South Carolina? What have we seen from those other named storms so far this year? So I think um, the B storm, I want to say it was called Bertha, was named a tropical storm as it was raining on top of us in May. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I literally, we were talking about, I was talking about um, ECS with um, my, my roommates and uh, one of them was like, oh, do you remember back in May when like a tropical storm formed on top of us? And I I, I, I was like, no, oh, that did. didn't happen. It definitely did, Emery. <laughs> it did, it did. Uh, I completely forgot about it. Right. So, so you know, that that rained on top of us and caused quite a flooding mess in Charleston. I was out in it at the time. Tony, I think, was too. Um, but, you know, we've kind of forgotten about it because we didn't have, I think, this huge lead up expecting it necessarily. Um, well, also, you know, May, who who is thinking about hurricanes in May right. or tropical the season, storms? The season doesn't start until June, but hurricanes can form in any month of the year. So, you know, that just because there's a season doesn't mean you're not going to see impacts outside of it. Um, there was also Hurricane Hannah, which hit the Texas Gulf Coast and sort of went south into Mexico. Um, I think it was a Category 1 as it landed on the very southern edge of Texas um, and caused a good bit of flooding and havoc down there. So Tony um, mentions this comparison that a lot of meteorologists and forecasters are making right now to the 2005 season. Um, and in addition to creating really destructive storms like Wilma and Katrina and Rita, uh, 2005 was probably nothing short of hyperactive in the Atlantic Basin. Um, the first storm formed in the first week of June, and the last storm dispersed in January 2006. So it was an extremely long season. There were 27 named storms, which is insane. That's yeah, the we, point ran, we ran out of names, yeah. We, yeah, that's the point where you run out of names and you just start using Greek letter names because that's our backup when we run through the list. Um, the, the differences so far with 2005 is that the storms that have spun up are not nearly as powerful. There's kind of an arbitrary measure called accumu accumulated cyclone energy, right? Basically saying how strong are these storms whipping like on the whole? And we are definitely above average in that regard right now, but we're not tracking anywhere near what 2005 was. Um, a few factors have kind of dampened some of the storms this year and kept them relatively low level. And Isaias struggled with this as well. There's been wind shear in the basin, which basically means wind running in different directions. And that can kind of knock a hurricane apart because a hurricane's just a big spinning cylinder. So it needs winds in the atmosphere to be running in the same direction. If they're not, it falls apart. Um, there's also been quite a bit of dry air in the basin. So the ocean is really warm, as Tony mentioned, abnormally warm. Um, and that provides a good bit of energy, but a lot of the air layer has not been. 
Um, so that's part of forecasters think why Isaias didn't dump a crap ton of rain on us because it had been struggling with this dry air and this shear on its way up from Florida. And so it was a little bit weakened and didn't have time to soak up quite as much, you know, precipitation that it dropped. Um, so we are in a very early season, definitely abnormal. Um, people are making 2005 comparisons a lot. And I think that's tempting because it was just a horrific year, but we're not quite tracking there yet. Um, at the beginning of the season, everyone did say we're expecting an above average season and there's a lot of factors at play there. A La Nina is in the process of forming right now, um, which is a big climate pattern. Basically, all that means is that there's generally less shear in the Atlantic and sort of winds are moving in the correct direction to push hurricanes towards us. Um, we're also in a like warm phase in the Atlantic Ocean. And we have been basically since about 1990. Um Hurricane Hugo was kind of the start of this. And I know a lot of folks around here will remember that before Hugo, there had not been a ton of landfalling hurricanes. And so there was a lot of really generous insurance payments at the time in Charleston. Um, but since about then, you know, the Atlantic has been slightly warmer than average. Um, and that's been fueling storms as well. And it also seems like with just how many variables there are on what happens with the storm if it's severe where it goes um i would just think that the more there are the higher likelihood you're gonna have more that come here and that are strong and um yeah wow just i don't i don't like the thought of getting through the alphabet um that's not Did I freak that's out not <laughs> not great <laughs> i mean i wouldn't say freak out because you could have a not busy season and have one storm landfall and kind of ruin your whole <laughs> ruin your whole year, true, right? So true. busy season doesn't always mean busy season for the Carolinas, but we've already seen some action and I wouldn't be surprised if we get, you know, at least another scare. Um, especially because we're going into peak season right now, kind of August into October. Um, that's when the ocean is hottest and that's when things tend to boil up the most. Is that also in terms of South Carolina specifically? when we've historically seen more hurricanes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, generally speaking, after mid-October, we're kind of in the clear, um, just looking at historical records, but, you know, we're breaking all sorts of records this year, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let me ask then, is the hurricane season changing, or is it too early to, to say? You know, I think, there's mounting evidence that that the that the because of because of climate change the the hurricane season is beginning sooner and ending later, and that kind of makes sense. If as the planet warms, more heat equals more tropical storms. Right, Tony's exactly right. Um, a lot of the research so far so far has shown a longer season. That doesn't always mean more hurricanes. Um, What's been shown so far is stronger hurricanes. So Harvey, which sat on top of Houston for days and dumped water. Um, actually, there was a paper done not terribly long after Harvey, basically showing that that amount of water would have been very unlikely without a warmer atmosphere. 
Um, so linking a specific storm, a single storm to climate change is a really tricky science, but in some cases it has, it has been done. Dorian's another good example because it sat on the Bahamas and there's some research showing that storms are going to move slower and sort of stall out in that way, which of course is bad news if you're underneath them. We also don't have super long hurricane records. The satellite era has only been around since um, 1960s or so. And, you know, a lot of folks will tell you that probably we missed many really low level storms that we are catching today because we have excellent monitoring technology. Um, there are folks who go back and look at like ship logs into the 1800s to try and guess where a hurricane went. It's really interesting science, but it's just not as detailed data. Um, so that is important when you're thinking about long-term trends. You know, we know the globe is getting warmer. We know the oceans are getting warmer, um, but some of the finer points of that connection are still being teased out because we don't have a super long record of hurricanes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and just just to, to think about it, like from a statistics perspective, like we're talking about something, a, a phenomenon that occurs like 10 to 20 times a year. So you just think about like, if you're trying to gather the statistics, that's not a lot of events to study. So it's, you know, it, it's hard to to conclusively say until like several years have passed that there's like really a change. That So for, I guess, for the example of a slower moving storm, how does that connect to climate change? Lot, lots of rain, just these super soaker events, you know, like Harvey, um, stalling out like Dorian, um, and in some cases, really, really rapid intensification. Um, and that means really turning into a major hurricane like Category 3 or above quite quickly. Um, those are things that, you know, emerging science is kind of tied to that signal. Is there anything you want to add on that, Tony? I was just going to say that there's been some really interesting research that has tried to, to, to sort of look, tease out this climate change angle and and they some really really good papers have been done that that show that specific storms were a little stronger and a little more intense and had a little more rain you know 20 percent more rain than they would have had otherwise it has to do um with a warmer atmosphere and the atmospheric dynamics right these steering currents just aren't necessarily there to kind of push a storm along um, the, the, and I would say that that's still kind of being sussed out too. Um, what is absolutely clear is that a warmer atmosphere can hold more water. It can hold more moisture. So that means that if your atmosphere is warmer, your storm can hold more water and then dump more water. That is one of the clearest signals that we've seen. Um, and as Tony mentioned, right, there's these great analyses showing a storm was stronger in terms of rain than it might've been otherwise. Yeah, I've had some really interesting conversations with a top uh, researcher who is working on uh, the kind of studies about the jet stream. And as the jet stream is, is this upper level river of air to usually to the north of us, that is juiced up by the difference between the, the cold air to the north and the warm air to the south. So when that difference is greater, when there's colder air up north and warmer air up 
down south, you have a jet stream that flows more quickly. And the jet stream is one of those giant steering currents that will push a hurricane away or steer it more quickly. But if the Arctic warms up because of climate change, that te temperature difference between north and south is less. So there's less energy in the jet stream. If the jet stream slows down, weather systems will become more sluggish. And then we'll have these giant rain bombs that just sort of sit on us like elephants. I also wanted to briefly talk about evacuations and what that could look like this year, because of course we're still dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. And with this storm, there weren't any evacuations in, in South Carolina. Do we know the reasoning for that? Of course, this wasn't as, as strong as some other storms, but do we know if that was connected to COVID-19 at all, the decision to not call for any evacuations? So Emily, that that did not play a role. So that if you talk to the governor's office, uh, they said we made it independent of any decision. We made the decision to evacuate based on whether or not it was an emergency. You can make up your own minds about whether or not that's sort of putting your head in the sand because of all the complex issues that the coronavirus would raise if we did have to evacuate and set up emergency shelters where people congregate. And, uh, so I don't, we didn't, this, this storm was not a test uh, for us, but uh, we'll likely have one. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that, that seems reasonable because it, it's, um, you know, even if, I, like, I feel like even if coronavirus weren't happening, this this probably wasn't a storm that would have tipped them over the threshold into ordering an evacuation, like even in a normal year. Um, but so I guess maybe then a, a different way to think about it is like, what are, are let me rephrase, um, what is the thinking at the state level or and maybe even at, at other levels, like when and if, and hopefully not, knock on wood, a, a more serious situation develops, um, so, you know, because coronavirus is going to be a factor. So, so how is that going to change? So what we just do? as, yeah, um, just as a baseline, the reason we actually evacuate in South Carolina is for storm surge. Um, that is the point. That is what is, you know, most life threatening at the coast. Um and you're trying to get people away from that wall of water. So, um, you know, wind might be howling, right? But that's not the motivation to get people out of the way. Um, Emery, as you mentioned, it's it's definitely complicated this year. In the spring, um, folks were still kind of trying to figure out how things were, were going to change. And as you mentioned, a point of major concern is congregate shelters. So, a bunch of cots set up by the Red Cross in like a high school or something um, where folks would go if they don't have a place to go, you know, if they can't snag a hotel room somewhere. Um, so this year, my colleague Shamira McRae just reported that shelters are going to be able to hold like 20% of the people that need to need to evacuate significantly less. That's part of the strategy is that we will see fewer people in these congregate shelters. The Red Cross is planning to get hotel rooms um, to help out anyone that they can't get into a shelter. 
And if you're going to a shelter, they're going to provide you with a mask. They're going to ask you to wear it. All of the staff there will be wearing masks and they will be doing temperature checks at the door. Um, so that's their attempt to, you know, try and catch someone who may be ill um, rather than having them go into that shared space. It, it's it's going to be a challenging year. And I think something that really haunts emergency managers is the risk that people will not evacuate, that they will choose to ride out a storm that otherwise they might move away from. Um, in Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley, which was affected by Hannah, like basically nobody showed up at public shelters there. Um, and Hannah was a category one storm. So it's possible that people were making a decision, you know, I'm going to stay here, especially because Texas has a quite severe situation going on with the coronavirus right now. So um, it really remains to be seen how it's all going to work out. A question in my mind is like, how do you secure those hotel rooms? I'm sure that the Red Cross is making arrangements in advance with particular hotels um, so that they can have blocks of rooms available when they need them. But just from personal experience, you know, when there's an evacuation going on, if it's in a broad area, it is really hard to find a room. Uh, it's challenging. And sometimes you've got to get, you know, like into North Carolina in some cases to find a room or a room that is affordable for you. Um, you know, that stock is also going to be decreased because maybe people aren't going to want to stay in like an Airbnb that's in a stranger's house, you know? Um, so you're right, Emery, we haven't had a major test of this yet. Um, you know, you know, it's, it's, uh, I hadn't really thought about that until you just mentioned it, but you know, earlier in the episode, I, I mentioned, um, that, that people ask me a lot about like the criteria for when they should evacuate. And I guess now I should mention like the, the, the context of that this year is exactly what you're talking about. I've, I've had multiple conversations with people like in the area who are, who are like, you know, I, I know what I would normally do um, in a normal year. I, I would just go ahead and evacuate. I, I might evacuate for any storm, but like this year, I, I think I'm going to, you know, uh, my, my, my threshold is a little bit higher for, for when I might evacuate just because of the, the COVID risk. And, um, yeah, I gotta imagine that that's probably pretty and widespread. And I think people also need to think, you know, maybe your plan is to go stay with family or friends inland. You know, maybe you're staying with family in Columbia or Greenville or something like that. Um, and mm -hmm. you might want to consider whether there are folks in those households um, with significant medical risk because, you know, it's possible to have this disease and, and not know you have it and spread it to someone else. So, um, yeah, it's a really, it's a really, really complicated decision-making matrix this year. Um, and I mean, I would encourage everyone to go through that mental exercise. Hopefully this storm made you do that, but go through that mental exercise of what did I do last year? What am I comfortable with doing this year? Um, if someone tells you to evacuate, you should evacuate because the risk is not necessarily that there mm -hmm. will definitely be water in your house, but the risk is that you have an emergency and no one can reach you. That's part of it too. Um, so, you know, take that order seriously if it comes, but you also need to think about how does my plan change this year? I'm sorry, that was really dire, but 
no, 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 but you're, no, you're, you're very right. And if, if, if this storm, like you said, wasn't the thing that got people to think through their plan and to talk to their, their family, their, their spouse, all the people they're making this decision with, you know, today is probably the time sit down, think it out, consider all the, the different factors you need to consider this year, you know, so that if and when, and hopefully not, we have a bigger storm. It's scary to think about, but I think if you've done the mental exercise beforehand and you're not figuring it out on the fly when everyone's freaking out, um, it will in the long run be easier. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. Well, on that note, I think um, that's probably note of where we should end the episode. Um, <laughs> note, yeah, note of doom. You know, there's there's one thing. Uh, that, what, what was that, that Tony? That, that's in our favor, and, and, and that's that we live in an armpit. Uh, I'll explain. We're, we, yeah. The the coast, the geography of the coast, kind of curves. Yeah. Inward, so. Uh, Places like Savannah, you know, rarely get hit. And so between Savannah and us, we, we're sort of inland. So the storms kind of tend to arc toward outside of that armpit uh, toward uh, Wilmington, which has been, been hammered. So be grateful that we live in a hot and mm-hmm. sweaty place. <laughs> Maybe the, maybe the worst the worst marketing campaign ever. You know, come to yeah. the South Carolina and Georgia coast. Safe as safe as your armpit. Nice, nice. Tony, thank God you're here for comedic yeah. relief. I've got everyone into like yeah. a spiral, <laughs> but you can bring the laughs at the end. I like that. Yeah. I would I would love if Charleston started using that in their tourism uh, marketing coast. campaigns. I mean, our tourism industry isn't doing great. So maybe America's try something different, you know. Yeah. Well, America's armpit. Right, um, Tony, <laughs> how how can listeners get in touch with you if they if they want to? Oh, so um, yeah, ask you contact Amory Parker or, or maybe get some more of these amazing jokes. <laughs> no, I'm I'm at the Post and Courier. Just okay. <laughs> try to find me. All right. Um, Chloe, how about you? Um, I'm on Twitter at, at underscore Chloe AJ. My email and phone number are on every single story I write. And I would encourage everyone to sign up for Hurricane Wire, uh, where you can, oh, yeah. it's a weekly newsletter. I write it. Um, we have other writers who are going to get into the mix this year as well. Um, and it's a good resource to sort of think about the Atlantic Basin and like academic terms. Um, and sort of what's going on out there and, and get early warning on things that could affect us. But hopefully we get lucky this year. I'm certainly open for that. Yep. Yep. Hopefully we, we've, we've already checked off our, our this year's storm is, is done, hopefully. Um, so if you've got any comments or questions or suggestions for this podcast, um, we're also on Twitter. You can find us. We are at understand SC, all one word. 
Um, so thanks so much for listening, and we will be back next week with another episode. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of the show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com. If you're a fan of the show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see you all next week.